Welcome to Mentors on Fire podcast, episode 16, where we're going to speak to my good friend from California, Steve Prisborowski. We also have Rob with us tonight. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, fellas. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Before we dive into your, your story, we do want to thank our sponsor, Command Consulting LLC, Solutions That Work. So if you are looking for solutions in areas such as uh, electric vehicles and electrification, developing charging infrastructure, things like that, which I know nothing about, but they do. Emergency services, including professional development programs and shared services and the like. Reach out to Command Consulting LLC, Solutions at Work. You can reach Michael or Robert at Mentors, uh, I'm sorry, Command Consulting LLC. A little slip up there, it's not the Mentors on Fire, it's Command Consulting LLC. Okay, so Steve, you are speaking to us from what what building? Uh, building, got all the numbers here, Federal Campus, Building A here in Emmitsburg, Maryland. A, National Fire Academy. We, we did record one previous podcast, and uh, we had a little glitch with the, the upload. So you're actually going to be the first, not the first recorded, but the first right. published podcast. So we're looking forward to it. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I'm going to give a little bit of, of a bio on Steve just to, to get our guests uh, acquainted with who we're dealing with tonight. Steve Prisborowski has over 31 years of fire service experience, <clears throat> recently retiring as a deputy chief with the Santa Clara County Fire Department in California. He's still actively involved in the fire service through speaking, writing, coaching, and mentoring personnel aspiring to either get hired or get promoted right up my alley. Steve is a Firehouse Magazine contributing editor. He received the 2020 Ronnie Jack Coleman Leadership Legacy Award from the Center for Public Safety Excellence, and in 2008 was the California Fire Instructor of the Year. He's authored and contributed to over 200 articles and other um, publications in leading fire service publications and has published four books, career development books, and they're entitled Reach for the Firefighter Badge, The Future Firefighter's Preparation Guide, How to Excel at Fire Department Promotional Exams, and most recently, 101 Tips to Ace Your Promotional Exam, published by Fire Engineering. And he's going to talk to us, I'm sure, tonight about what he speaks passionately about, which is his Courage Under Fire Leadership Program. And we'll give you his website at the end of the podcast. So, Steve, it's for all of those reasons why we wanted to have you on as a guest. Um, I do know of your work. Actually, you were recommended to me by a friend of mine that was looking at your website for promotional stuff. So how did you get involved in that type of stuff? We'll, we'll get back to the beginning, but how did you get so involved in that kind of stuff? Well, it's it's funny because I first started testing for the position of firefighter in 1991. My first full-time position was, was with Santa Clara County in 1995. So it was about a four-and-a-half-year journey to become a firefighter. During that four-and-a-half years, I was fortunate to be an explorer firefighter, a part-time firefighter, or a paid called firefighter, um, and a student firefighter. But the first paid full-time gig was 95. Well, I've always had a passion for wanting to be on the other side of um, the uh, 
the uh, the classroom, so to speak. You know, I've been a student for a number of years, obviously, and I always looked up to the instructors that I had. I remember even in my intro to fire class back in 1991, I was very inspired by some really, really motivated individuals that were about my age a couple of years later, but they were there. And I'm like, I'd love to be in that position at some point. And excuse me. And um, it was one of those things that I kept doing what I was doing, getting involved with different things. Naively, I thought I had to, you know, work for the FDNY or the biggest fire department in the world just to get credibility and everything else. And I've always had a passion for helping people get hired, obviously, maybe because I was on the other side of the fence for so long. I mean, not to say I'm an expert at it because it took me so long, but I had that passion for that. And I always looked in the future saying I'd love to also not just do entry level, but also promotional preparation. I'd love to do leadership classes. But I also realized I had to pay my dues and get my foot in the door and get some experience. And really, for me, I'm fortunate to do what I'm doing right now when it comes to leadership officer development and still the entry level or promotional level stuff. But I figured I had to find my niche. So really what that was is once I got hired, uh, I started helping others with entry level promotion. And shortly after I got hired, Firehouse Magazine actually created their website. I know for people listening, created a website. Well, Today, creating a website is obviously no big deal, but you got to realize about 20 plus years ago, there were really no websites. So here's Firehouse Magazine looking for authors to speak about things. And I'm just like, a at the time, I think a junior captain, brand new. And, you know, I had already done some time um, as a mentor and as a volunteer skills instructor with the EMT program, the paramedic programs I was involved with the college, the Firefighter Academy. So it's just really not a comedy of error, maybe a right place, right time. So I remember back in October 95, when I got hired with Santa Clara County Fire, I'm in the Recruit Academy, three months, October, November, December 95. Almost ironically, I'd already been teaching as a skills instructor volunteer at the college. And I remember my first week in the academy for the whole first month of the academy, I'd work eight to five at the Recruit Academy, finish up there, drive up to the college, you know, traffic wasn't that bad. Then get up to the college, teach from 7 to 10, doing the EMT refresher class. Why? Because the opportunity arose just because I volunteered my time. Well, I kept doing that. And then one thing led to another. Next thing you know, it's like, hey, you want to teach a semester class on firefighter safety? Sign me up, coach. And then next thing you know, it's like, hey, you want to run the EMT program? Again, just because of my hard work and being there, I guess, or the last man standing. And then next thing you know, it's like, hey, you want to run the fire program? because the fire science coordinator left and I had a good track record. So here I am as a captain still running the fire science program at Chabot, running the EMT program. I had also been teaching at the department because I, again, before I got hired, I was fortunate to be a paramedic skills instructor because we were going ALS back in 95. So right place, right time, taking advantage of opportunities. And then one thing just leads to another that I'm continuing to be able to do what I really enjoy doing, which is helping others get hired, but also stay hired, help others get promoted, but also stay promoted. When I say stay hired or promoted, meaning not doing stupid stuff, that ties into the courage under fire leadership stuff of doing the right thing and everything. And then obviously to this day, still help enjoy giving back to others. So it's been a continuous track record. And here I am at the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Even though I've been in the fire service for over 30 years, it's my first year actually teaching, which I'm just so stoked about. I'm scared out of my friggin' mind. I've been teaching for 30 years. I've been in front of hundreds of students. I mean, I've been in front of fire chiefs all the way down to firefighters, all types of audiences. And now I got 20 of my peers 
I know the material, I can do the material and I'm getting more comfortable three days into it, but it's just like, oh my God, I'm at this prestigious place that I just don't want to screw up the opportunity and not be asked to come back again. We'll find out. Last day is Friday, so I'm not counting my chickens yet, but it's just been a continuous path for me of just not saying yes to everything, but just taking advantage of opportunities within the department, outside of the department. Sometimes it's timing, opportunity, and just right place at the right time. So I'm blessed, I'm fortunate, and you know, long story short, I still love helping give back when I can, meaning helping others. And uh, without the politics, the stress, and the bureaucracy of being a chief officer for the last 15 or so years. Yeah, it's got to be very different, very different feeling. The uh, the we were talking before we, we record about being in front of the classroom at the National Fire Academy. <clears throat> There's something to be said for sitting in that in that room on that campus that really does elevate the learning process or at least the learning environment. So um, they got uh, they got the right person in front of the room. Oh, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. So talk to us a little bit about how you got started. I mean, you touched on it a bit, but what was your motivation to get into the fire service? Is that something that you always wanted to do? Was that so something that somebody recommended to you? Did it happen by accident? You know, it's funny. Um, I was a normal kid like most other kids growing up. We had a firehouse six blocks away in the city of San Leandro, just uh, south of Oakland. I was that typical kid that loved seeing the fire engines go by. I loved it when they came by the schools for whatever tours or um, uh, public education week and everything in October. So I always had that on my radar screen. I was sort of maybe jaded a little bit because my, my late father was very encouraging about, hey, you know, go for the fire department. But then he passed away the same year that I was graduating high school. And my mom was very against it, and she was more like, well, get your college degree, you know, go to Cal State Hayward, California State University Hayward, which is about 20 minutes away. Get your college degree, you know, you got to have that. I was working at Long's Drug Stores, which was bought out by CVS. Most of you have a CVS drugstore out there. I was actually started at 16. I was working as a manager at age 21. It was a decent pay, decent job, but it wasn't a career. So even though I always wanted to be a firefighter and stayed in touch with family friends that were firefighters, it really wasn't until I finished my six-year six year college degree program, and it wasn't a master's degree at six years. It was you taking six and a half years to get through the four-year degree program. Hey, Join the club. Well, yeah, but I was also working at CVS. I didn't have a lot of focus, so to speak. and I, I mean, I barely squeaked by with like a 2.09 grade point average, but it wasn't my passion. It wasn't until I was – this is going to sound weird. One of my managers at Long's Drugs, I was working with him, and he was like older than me and, you know – well-established and he was joking he's here i am on the golf course talking to his his hoity-toity friends you know that have good paying jobs that you know guys he went to high school with and you know i mean it's decent paying but it wasn't high level they're talking about all their busy, big business deals he they made and he's like well what do i have to show for my job at you know longs at the time well i i built the feminine hygiene display you know and i'm pretty proud of that he was being sarcastic but it was one of those things that I'm not getting any younger. I mean, again, I was about 24 when I graduated college. And I remember my buddy, Greg Vitz, who I went to high school, junior high school with. Greg was sort of me. We were working at Long's Drugs together. We were both going to Cal State Hayward, both relatively close neighbors. But he also enjoyed the fire service, too, because we'd share firehouse, fire engineering magazines. when We were still in high school checking those things out. And I can't remember when, but here we are about six months to graduate. And I remember he's like, we got to go for this stuff. And both of us literally said, we can't do this stuff as a career, you know, at the drugstore. 
And you know what? We, at that point, both of us went to Chabot College, which was right there, you know, relatively close. And it's like we enrolled in the fire technology degree program because we knew, based on the research at the time, that if you want to be a firefighter, at least in the San Francisco Bay Area back in the early 90s, you had to have your EMT. That was just a no-brainer. You also had to have the academy completed at the college. That's what most departments wanted then, not necessarily now, still EMT. But we planned out our plan of attack. We just graduated the college. We immediately started testing for firefighter positions before we even started the college. And at that point, we enrolled in the college and figured, you know what, start taking every test we're qualified for, get our EMT, our firefighter one. And if that doesn't work, go to paramedic school. Well, two and a half years later, we're doing okay. But then we made the decision to go to paramedic school while we're also volunteering as, you know, explorers and student firefighters. But it really wasn't until we finished paramedic school. So really, my whole passion and desire to be a firefighter has gone back younger Part of me wishes I would have taken it more seriously at 18 or 19 versus, say, at 24 years old because I wasn't hired full-time until, like, I was 28. But I also look back on, I don't, know if, I don't know if I was mature enough at 18, 19, 20 to be able to have a job that pays so well and, you know, gives you that much time off. Not to say I'd screw it up, but, you know, some make immature choices. So good, better, and different. I'm glad I had some more time to get some experience and it's a decision I'll never regret. And, you know, teaching at the college to this day, literally last night <laughs> in this room of the campus, I was on with my students in the second week of the intro to fire class. And, you know, I still think it's a great job, great career. And, you know, that's what I enjoy and was very blessed with uh, being a part of and still a part of. So in order to get hired by a fire department in California, we talk to a lot of different people <clears throat> from different states and they all do some version of something yeah uh, pre-employment hiring or pre-employment -pre training mm -hmm. um where you were in california you had to have your certs on your own and then they would hire from a certified list yeah basically every city back then every city did their own tests most of them were requiring emt or firefighter one this was like 91 two three and four and then 94 to five is when the big push for als went out so around 94 Every department in the San Francisco Bay Area, very few were ALS paramedic providers. Well, it was like almost like a, you know, the, the um, switch was flipped and everybody was hiring paramedics, whether even if they just had engine companies and non-transport. So that was the, I don't want to say the gold ticket, but it was, you know, going through a year of pain and suffering through paramedic school, as you know, was well worth it in the long run because that's what narrowed down the competition from thousands of people down to like 50 or 60 in my case. Wow. Even to this day, it's still a, you know, it's, it seems like departments across the country are still struggling for paramedics. So it's one of the best things to do to get a career, but it's also you got to better, you better do it because you want to do it and you don't mind doing it for a number of years for the right reasons, not just to get hired as a firefighter. So you get hired by Santa Clara County right out of the gate? Four and a half years into the testing, I took about 60 different tests around the state. Before 60, I, wow. Well, and I'll clarify that before you go, what a freaking loser, 60 tests. Well, well, that's what I was thinking, Steve. Oh, I know, that's okay. <laughs> Been there, done that myself when I look in the mirror some days. But about <laughs> half of those were random lotteries. At the time, because of the thousands of applications that departments were getting, they would do random lotteries. So even Santa Clara County used to do random lotteries, but when they went paramedic, there was less than 70 applic applicants, so there was no need for a random lottery. So... I was 0 for 20 on random lotteries. I don't know if they're coincidental and they're truly random. I'm not a mathematician or a statistician, but it's like 0 for 20 on random lotteries. That ain't random. 
But then I realized over the years that departments can pick and choose who they want to go forward on the random lottery based on whatever their needs are for hiring. Right. Like, okay, that I mean, it is what it is. So yeah, you take away the O for twenty on random lotteries, you know, there was just thousands of applicants. Whereas today, as I was telling my students last night, it's easier today to become a firefighter, even without paramedic, because most departments today aren't even requiring well, they're not requiring any college education. It's definitely beneficial. They're not requiring even firefighter one in most areas, and most still require EMT or paramedic, but some departments are so desperate for people and or diversity needs that they'll end up putting people through EMT or paramedic school. So it's, and because of, you know, people complaining around the country about, you know, they go down to Starbucks and it's not staffed up properly or McDonald's not staffed up. Well, guess what? That's a fire service problem, too. I mean, here we are talking today. There's firefighters in the National Fire Academy from all around the country. Everyone's complaining about recruitment and retention. And it's not just for volunteers, but it's also for career members. So you couple all that together. I see a lot of departments, I don't want to say lowering their requirements because that's subjective, but more um, adjusting their requirements to basically get good quality people in that they can maybe train to the level they want to. I mean, the old saying, we can train most people to do the skills, the tasks, but we can't train most people to be nice, not be a jerk, to be good people to work with, you know, to have good social skills, people skills. And I think that's that challenging part. So it's, you know, it's, it's just different time. It's just the way it is. I'm going to ask, because you're very involved nationally, what do you attribute the the difficulty with recruitment and retention to? If one or more than one major factor? Well, when all when we got on the job years ago, I think most of us, whether we watched Emergency Squad 51 or not, I mean, that was definitely an influence at the time, seeing Johnny and Roy flick the, you know, the D5W sodium bicarb or whatever else. But back then, public safety, I think, was more of an enticing career, government jobs, you know, hey, good solid job, good pay, good benefits, 10 days a month, can't hurt that either. Well, about 10 years ago, what, you know, the numbers started dwindling down over the last handful of years, but it was only about maybe 10 years ago, we were doing a career fair at a high school, which is very normal for fire farmers to do, as you know. We're at Cupertino High School. Cupertino is home of Apple computers. That's our first two areas. So here we are at Cupertino High School, and the city of Cupertino is almost two-thirds Asian, you know, bad or different. Well, we're doing this public safety fair, county sheriff's office who handles fire, I mean, excuse me, handles um, law enforcement for Cupertino, county fire who handles fire for Cupertino. They're both contracted. Nobody ever goes to the cops. We know that. But I remember, excuse me, talking to the other firefighter I was with going, where's all these students? Because all the students that are in the high school are visiting everybody but fire and police. We know they're not going to visit police. No disrespect, man. But it wasn't until we had a conversation with one of the high school um, students that was on their whatever, I can't remember, leadership committee or whatever. We asked the question, it's like, where are the, why aren't people coming up to fire? You know, and it was funny because one of the leadership students actually goes, well, you know what, let's, we're going to do a study because they had they to do a project. And they go, we're going to give us a few months. We'll do a study and survey a bunch of students. Okay. Well, they came back basically saying, the kids here, again, primarily Asian students, have no desire to go into public safety careers, even knowing it's a good, stable pay, good schedule, fun to be on the big red truck, or in our case, the BWT, the big white truck. And 
there was just not that interest. And I had one student, I don't know if he was Chinese, Japanese, but he goes, you know, it'd be cool to be a firefighter. It's like, well, dude, here's what you got to do. You know, go to EMT. It's right over here. But he goes, I'd get disowned by my family if I became a, basically a public servant, fire police. Right. And it was sort of interesting. And he wasn't being disrespectful. I mean, he's being respectful toward his parents. And it got, and then we heard more of that come out after that leadership group did their their um, surveys of the students going, wow, given it's also the Silicon Valley, you know, Apple's there, Google is there, Facebook is there. And with the lure of all the high tech jobs, I mean, high tech, high status, sure, better pay than being a firefighter. That that's what's luring most people. So actually, most of our applicants in the hand, last handful of years have not been any local residents at all. They've actually been a lot of basically existing firefighters from other departments, especially in the Central Valley, which is a couple hours away, that can c- keep their house in the Central Valley, do a three-hour commute, double their salary because the salaries are higher in the Bay Area, keep their house, and really have minimal impact on their family by commuting twice a week for a forty-eight ninety-six schedule. I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's good to get experienced firefighters, but we're also struggling to get people because they can't even afford to live in the area unless they already live there, owning a place or renting a place. So it, it, it's not unique because I hear a lot of the same stories from everybody, even in non-area, that non-Silicon Valley areas. So I just don't think, I'm not pointing to generations. I think it's just the generations of today have a different purpose. Just like when we were growing up, we had a different purpose, as did our fathers, grandfathers, and so forth. So where is it going to be 10, 20 years from now? I don't know, but I think it's going to be more of a challenge for public safety and fire to try to recruit people, especially when you watch recruitment videos. They're all sexy fire porn, for lack of a better term. I mean, look at most fire recruitment videos. It's fight, fire, save lives. And then it's like, okay, yeah, last year, 15 firehouses, we ran 20,000 calls, which isn't a lot of calls. 1% of those 20,000 were fires. Fires as small as maybe a car fire, garbage can fire, room and contents, fully involved house, 1% fire, and most of our calls are not significant incidents and or life-saving events that you're going to grab someone from the clutches of death on. And that's what I've seen in a lot of people that do get enticed to the sexiness. And once they find out that, wait a second, it's a very routine job with a lot of routine calls and rarely good, exciting calls, I don't want to do that crap. So just, I don't know, it's just very interesting. I think we got to find a better way to market it so we're not false advertising, doing false advertising to people. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Rob, did you have anything before I jump in? I have a feeling that you might. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so it's interesting that uh, they don't value in that culture uh, public service. I've heard that numerous times from from other cultures that – Public service just is not a highly thought of in different nationalities. It's it's uh, um, thought of as just a low grade kind of job, and it's it's interesting to hear that again. Uh, the other thing with how we market stuff, the problem that I had uh, as a chief uh, with recruitment and retention is the expectation versus the compensation. Um, In other words, if you think about it, as a firefighter, you have to go to EMT school, then paramedic school, then then fire school, and you have to hold all those certifications. And the responsibility and the expectation 
to be 100%, 100% of the time, it, it just doesn't match up with the compensation um, that, that should go with that. And, I, and I'm not saying that we should be in it for the money. By all means, our, our profession is, is where it's at because of the love for the job and the love of our fellow uh, person. And it should stay that way. But I do think that one avenue to start riding this ship is to make some adjustments to either expectations or compensation. And I don't know how you do that, especially in low-income uh, areas. Uh, they, they need the services the most and they use it the most and, and they have the ability to pay the least. And um, it's it'll be interesting in the next coming years. I, I never thought we would be where we were or where we are right now. I mean, when I tested, I tested with 600 to 900 people. Yeah. The One of the last tests I gave as a fire chief, I had 20 applicants and, and I was I was tickled because I was like, oh, gosh, because that was the most we had had in, in several years. So um, I, I love hearing your perspective on that and, and seeing it from a, a, like Michael said, from a national perspective. So. Well, just jumping quickly there, it's, uh, I, I don't even know if it's just certain cultures, it's maybe just generations, and that's, I guess, to be seen there. The challenge with the compensation part is, at least what I've experienced is that nobody wants to pay more taxes. Nobody wants to pay more for the services that they're paying for. And like in my department, even though it's a wealthy area, so to speak, around the Silicon Valley, our salaries are dictated by property taxes, meaning our budget is property taxes so or contracts, city contracts. So the city contracts we have with half our departments or half our cities, excuse me, are set dollar amounts, meaning it's a 10-year contract with X amount of dollars this year, a little bit more next year, a little more based on like, you know, CPI increases, everything else. Well, the other half of the department is all property taxes. Like the city of Cupertino, we get revenue for property taxes. Los Gatos, where Netflix is, revenue for property taxes. Well, those are either going to go up or down or stay the same. So like in our department, the only way to get more compensation is to have less bodies, which of course nobody wants. Uh, like a lot of firefighters, when I say we should have four-person engine companies, we run the three and then four in the three in the engine, four in the truck. We can have four in the engines, but that we can't have the same amount of people. I mean, we'd have to have less stations, everything else, because the dollars are the dollars. And as many people think that we'll just go back to the cities and ask for more money. No, if we want to open up the contract, if you're the city manager, pretty much in any city USA. Hey, fire, we'll open up the contract. However, it ain't going to be to your benefit. It's going to be because we're going to look at reducing because we're already paying too much and we're hurting on our end. So it's a very slippery slope. And I, But I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, even as people are shocked by California salaries, they get friends of mine, they go, oh, my God, six-figure salaries for firefighters. Yeah, but do the Zillow search on housing prices. Even with a six-figure salary, you cannot afford even an apartment for rent. Well, you can afford maybe a ghetto little place somewhere, but you're commuting from a couple hours away and your dollar goes farther in other parts of the United States that maybe make half as much as what we make just because of the cost of living, housing being the number one thing right there. So that's the challenging part there is it's hard to adjust based on that. So it's, it's I mean, if for like, I couldn't afford the same house I bought in San Jose 24 years ago. If I, bought that house today, 
I couldn't afford it on the salary I just retired on as a, you know, senior deputy chief maxed out pay wise. I mean, that's the sad part about it. So, and even, even with a wife working who, you know, my wife works as a fire marshal for a neighboring department, even with both of our salaries, we couldn't afford to the same house. It's three bedroom, two bath house, nothing fancy about it, just a typical three bedroom, two bath, two car garage house. So that's the problem that I see going into the future. Whereas I try to tell the students, you know, if, if you've already got a place in the Bay Area, which nobody usually in college has a house, or unless they have a family place they inherited, move elsewhere to find a place that you can maybe afford to live and raise a family and everything else. So it's, I, I feel for new people today. Yeah, I think, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think you're spot on with uh, the sexiness of the job. You know, we, we advertise the sexiness of the job and then you mm -hmm. get in and you realize you know, uh, it, it is what it is. But on yeah. the flip side, too, I, I think the other way that the job is perceived is, a, is another avenue for us to correct. In other words, what I noticed was a lot of the public and elected officials um, did not realize what it was we did and, and mm -hmm. what our capabilities really were, especially on the EMS side of, right. of things. Um you know, at least in, in our area, a common thing that I battled was they thought we just walked in and put a person on the cotton drum in the hospital. <laughs> they, they didn't realize all of the advanced interventions that, that we were able to perform and, mm -hmm. and everything else. And a lot of them were shocked when, when you explained it and, and or, you know, unfortunately, if they were the recipient of such interventions. Um, but I think we need to, to do a better job at uh, selling ourselves in that way too. And the the other area that I saw was a lot of them think that we have all this time off. Um, and, you know, when you sit down and you do the numbers with people and show them that, no, actually we work, typically the typical firefighter works more hours a week than right. your 40 hour employee. Um, but the perception is, is we don't because we have all this time off. And um, I think that plays against us in the, when we talk about trying to get more compensation or more benefit uh, to make the job more uh, appealing to, to a younger generation. Well, given the turnover at any you know city council or board of commissioners, board of directors, think about it. most of those positions are all two or three or four year elected positions. Most people don't stay in those positions. So in my 31 years in the fire service, it's always been an education, trying to educate the elected officials, the appointed officials, but also the public. But I, I think the one thing I realize is it's, it, it's never gonna change. We're never gonna be able to educate people and probably no different than any one of us trying to figure out what somebody does for whatever company they work for. Because again, if we haven't done the job, so it doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean we stop trying to educate people, but it's almost like we're just chasing our tail here because as long as we work a 24 hour shift with in theory, you know, a third of the time on two thirds off the perception, I don't think is ever going to go away that, Hey, you know, you guys get to sleep and, you know, and, and many departments, most of our stations sleep all night. So it's not like it's, you know, we have a few stations that are up occasionally, but again, a lot, a lot of departments don't run calls all night long, but again, many do. So that's that balancing point. But even if, you know, just trying to educate people, it's a it's a losing battle. I don't want to say we give up, it's just a losing battle. 
you know, and I think that's the challenging part of, you know, where we're sort of shot ourselves in the foot sometimes of, uh, you know, not saying it's a bad or good thing, but I think it's just one of those challenges that we're going to continue to have to deal with and with tax dollars and cities going, not going up or, you know, only going down and employee costs only going up. It's just, you know, yeah. Well, let me ask you to take advantage of you as a guest and our time to talk about mentorship. Okay, perfect. The obviously you've been promoted a number of different times in your organization. Uh, first leadership position you held was what? Uh, captain, company officer. Yeah, captain. How many years into your career was that promotion? About five. Give about five, five and a half. And what was it that you were doing that led to your success on a promotional exam? Because I know you've written about it extensively. Having the department create a new 40-hour captain position in operations. Because <laughs> at the time, we had eight uh, fire stations. We had, I think, 11 fire. Sorry, that we, we changed fluctuation number of fires. I think we had 13 firehouses at the time. And because we were growing with some contracts of other cities, we created a 40-hour operations captain position to support the deputy chief operations. So I was number three on the promotional list for captain the first time out. Number one got promoted right away. Number two, about six months in the list. And I was going to probably die number one in the list until the department got a budget approval to create a 40-hour captain position operations. So Tom Tornell from the line jumped into that position, thus creating a vacancy out in the field. And... Lo and behold, because the list was de dead right after I got promoted. So it's just right time, right place. And thank you, County Fire, for creating a 40-hour position. I didn't, I mean, I didn't benefit from the actual position. I just benefited from, benefited from the movement. Well, you take it what you can get, Steve. Oh, heck, yeah. What, uh, what type of mentorship, formal or informal, did you have uh, in a new position in a large county department? Well, I'm, I'm glad you said the words formal and informal, and I just want to jump on the formal for a second. Um, when I was a firefighter and captain, one of the things we recognized as a department is that we need to do a better job mentoring people. And the fire chief at the time, with the best of intentions, got a committee together. I was one of a few members that were there to put together a formal mentoring process. I mean, it was, a, I think, I'm, the heart, our hearts were in the right place. It was a structured program that would match, you know, you signed up, if you want to be a mentor, it would, you know, match you with a mentee. And it failed miserably because it was too structured. Well, what I realized is that informal mentoring has been going on as long as I can remember. And that's sure. what's helped me where I'm at today is either me seeking out mentors at the same rank, other ranks within the department, outside the department, or mentors seeking out me, taking me under their wing, whether it's the senior firefighter, whether it's a company officer who knew I wanted to get promoted, or even a chief <laughs> officer that I might have been involved with, maybe as a part of a committee that I had been on, or maybe a class I had taken. So, you know, mentorship, I think, informal has been has gotten me where I'm at today, just because there's been a lot of good role models of what, what to do and what not to do. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I think it's it's I was talking today as we we're talking about training program management here in Emmitsburg, you know, because someone made a comment about what do we need to do differently? I go, we need to do more mentorship. I mean, it's not everyone's meant to be a mentor, should be a mentor. But on the flip side, every one of us in the fire department should be paying it forward, training our replacements, passing on our knowledge and doing what we can versus 
hey, here's the badge, kid. Don't screw it up. And I think that's that challenging part because there's a lot of firefighters, company officers, chief officers, eh, maybe not a lot of chief officers, but definitely firefighters, company officers that don't feel comfortable with doing that. Meaning, hey, I'm just a firefighter, just a driver, not my job. No, it isn't your job to grab somebody in your wing and be able to say, hey, let me offer some advice. And I think that's what benefited me to this day that I try to continue passing on that passing on as much as I can to others who care to listen. And if you know, that's fine too. So who was a mentor of yours that you recall? Oh God. One of my first ones that sticks out was, uh, I mentioned earlier, I was a student firefighter with the Oakland fire department, um, across the Bay from San Francisco, Oakland's busy urban environment fights a lot of fires, a lot of calls. I worked, I worked there. I was a student there for about a year and a half because they have a student work exchange work, Work um, work experience program that's actually through Chabot College. Once you have your firefighter one year EMT, and they assign you to a company, and I was on the busiest companies. Well, here I was as a wannabe firefighter around the fifth member on the company back in ninety two ninety three, and one of my mentors was a lieutenant, Jim Edwards. Jim was a lieutenant with Oakland Fire, but I knew Jim was going places. Jim had been on the job. He came from another department locally. Jim had his act together. And Jim was the one that took me as a student. And there was a lot of good people there that took me under their wing. But Jim, especially as a lieutenant, was able to talk to me. and was able to get advice to the point where the dude, I could tell, I want to be like this guy when I get older. And even the, he was the guy that pinned my badge on me when I got hired as a firefighter full-time. And we still stay yeah. in touch, obviously, through Facebook. And that was probably one of my first mentors that I still owe a lot to because he was so giving of his time and it, and it wasn't like, hey, you're just a student firefighter. Talk to me when you actually get the job. It was like, no, kid, hey, here's my advice. And that's the cool stuff. You know, it, it's, it really is so interesting. If, if, you think, if you think about who you are and what you represent to the fire service nationally, to have some, somebody make that big of a difference and create or have a hand in creating somebody that's going to go out there and, and duplicate that effort. It really does speak to the value of giving a shit about somebody. And as we talked about in our, our earlier episodes, mentorship is a gift from the mentor to the mentee. What were some of the characteristics you mentioned to some of them briefly, what were some of the characteristics that uh, Jim possessed that, that caused you to, to view him in, in such a way? It, oh, number one, approachability. Um, he had no ego versus there was other captains that I was assigned to during my time in Oakland. I mean, there was one captain. He was a good, solid captain. Everyone respected him. The dude could manage a fire scene. He was the, the guy. But I was scared shitless, excuse my language, of him <laughs> because, I mean, I'd be like, hey, Captain Jared, how you doing today? Oh, hey, kid. And it was almost like I felt like I was an in inconvenience to the company. And then at one point, maybe because he just hated student firefighters, he just like he told the battalion chief that coordinated the work experience program, I don't want any ride-alongs. And I, I took it personally, but then he's like, someone goes, no, he doesn't like any students there. And he just, <laughs> but it was like, but the guy was good, but I'm like, dang. And, but then here's Jim, very approachable, very very forward-minded realizing that you know what the people he influences today whether i just stayed a firefighter i mean he, he had i mean he had no clue where i was going to end up but he saw potential in me so someone that values you 
that respects you. Um, I'm very respectful. It's like, hey, Lieutenant Edwards, you know, blah, blah. But he was the type of guy that would literally just, everyone's, you know, chilling out in the recliners watching TV. He'd, hey, let's go rap about some stuff over here. And, you know, just teach me something new or share something with me. And he went out of his way to show that he actually gave a crap. I'll just say that. The empathy, the compassion that he shared because he remembered being in that position himself. So, I mean, I think those are some key traits right there. Just letting people know that you care and sometimes just empowering people because I tried to do the same when I was the training chief, we got a new recruit class in front of us of whatever, 10, 20 people. And I tried to sort of do the same thing to all them saying, Hey, welcome to the County fire. The chief will give you his welcome here shortly, but complete your probationary period, be the best firefighter. You can be, learn your craft, learn your trade, take advantage of mentors. But before you know, it's going to be 20 years, 30 years down the road. Some of you Excuse me, some of you are going to be captains, some of you will be battalion chiefs, some of you may be fire chiefs or deputy chiefs, who knows? But take the time to enjoy the ride, but also realize six months from now, you're going to have seniority because in six months, we're going to hire another group of people. So you better be that senior firefighter to them because we don't, we've, we like many departments don't really have those 20, 30, 40 year senior firefighters because most of the senior firefighters have promoted or retired. Sometimes like, Hey, you're nine years as a firefighter. You're the senior firefighter. It's like, holy moly. So I think those are probably some of the key traits that I still to this day appreciate and thank him for. Um, and I try to emulate myself too. You reminded me of a story, Steve. <clears throat> when I was a training officer in my department, we implemented the orange Proby shield. Okay. We never had one before. <clears throat> okay. So we had a probationary firefighter training book. You had to get signed off, modeled after the military. It was it was really a very formal program for new people. If you want to change an organization, don't change it from the top, change it from the bottom. Yep. But what I used to do in their year, when their year was up, <clears throat> they had to come and sit down with me. Okay. And I would ask them a bunch of questions that they could get right. And then I would, I would always ask them one that I knew that they wouldn't get. Because I right. wanted them, I wanted them to understand that there's always going to be stuff that you didn't know. Right. And I would give them the shield, and I would say to them, "Do you understand the difference between when you came into this room and when you walk out?" And they would look at me kind of puzzled, and I would say, <laughs> <clears throat> "When you walked in here, you walked in with an orange shield, which was licensed for you to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. When you walk out with the black shield on your helmet, now." everyone's going to be expecting you to have all of the answers. Yep. And that, com- that conversation mattered to people. It really mm-hmm. did influence the way that they looked at it because it it demanded that they go out there and, and find out the answer to something that they didn't know, but they had to be honest with themselves, which made me think about that story. Funny stuff. No, and that's so true, though. I think – because the opposite, as we've probably faced in our careers, is as a new person going in, you're sort of not scared, but you're it's the unknown that you're not familiar with. And there are those people out there that are like, hey, kid, forget everything they taught you in the academy. You got two ears, one mouth, a reason. Shut up unless, you're be, you know, unless you have a reason to talk, but you shouldn't be talking. You should be listening. And you need to earn my trust. Wait a second. You expect me to trust you, but then you expect me to earn your trust. I don't get. I'm, a, you know, easy for me to say now. And we've had those people that probably were there, but it's like we can't start out people's careers like that. I mean, 
obviously they don't have a lot of experience, but we have to empower them to grow because the last thing we want to have happen is to have those people turn into the same people or not so good mentors that they were mentored or mentored what not to do. So it's, it's a vicious cycle, but you know, we, I think we have to do a better job at empowering the folks that are coming on today and, you know, making them part of the team. Cause if we truly expect them to be part of the team, we better include them. I'm not saying that they should be probably chilling out in the recliners with the paid people, but you know, they should still be studying during probation, but it's not like we should be hazing them, harassing them or doing whatever it takes to make them feel inadequate, so to speak, until they've quote earned it, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, Steve. You used the word empowerment. Uh, I take my position now working mm-hmm. at a fire academy very, very seriously. And I tell them all the time that I view my role as extremely important because I get to influence the next generation of the fire service. You know, our recruit classes are 40 to 45 students. Wow. And not all of those people are going to get hired, but the ones that do, are going to be the next generation. They're going to turn around, blink of an eye, two, three, four, five years, they start getting promoted, <clears throat> and off you go. I I see my responsibility, my duty and responsibility to, to create, and I tell them all the time, I want to create an environment for you to be successful. It's up to you to, to, to determine whether or not you're successful. I can want it for you, but I can't do it for you, and really make them feel like they belong. They still have to earn it. Yep. But to alienate people, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> I was not always this way. We have to, to grow into it, right? Uh, but there are people that learn the lesson. There are people that don't. What type of um, what type of mentorship are you engaging in now? I mean, there's, I really want to get into what you're doing now because you're making such a big impact in the fire service now. Well, uh, even though I retired from the fire department, when I it, my former boss is here taking a class, which is sort of cool because I haven't caught up with him for a while. But I am when when I say I retired from the fire department, basically as I tell people, I miss the people, but I don't miss the headaches, the bureaucracy. Yeah. Of a chief officer, if I was still a firefighter, engineer, company officer, it'd be a different story because there's less politics at that level, less bureaucracy, there's still bureaucracy in politics. But when you get to the chief officer ranks in a large organization or even small organization, there are those headaches that are just, they are what they are. And that's not meaning anything good or bad because every department's got them, but I don't miss that craziness, but I still enjoy, I'm fortunate to still teach at the college. So one night a week I teach the intro to fire class. So that, I mean, I cherish that because like, just like with you, it's the future of the fire service that we have a chance to influence. So to me, mentoring has always been like the college students that are at the school. Excuse me. Sorry, my, my Coke Zero is, is uh, not cooperating with me. But um, <laughs> at the college level, staying engaged there. Um, I do a lot of promotional coaching, but also entry-level coaching for people. Um, usually college students, I mean, usually college students I don't charge because I remember being in that position It's you know, it's if, if I didn't charge anybody, I'd be I'd be more busier than I imagined, which is not a bad thing. But I got to balance my time. But like with students that are going through college, I try to, you know, give them a break. And, it's, you know, I'm more than happy to help them coach them. So that's really the joy is trying to stay continuing with that, the future of the fire service. And 
and obviously mentoring as well to those that are in the fire service that want to be able to maybe promote to captain or promote to chief, fire chief. So I do a lot of promotional coaching, um, one-on-one type of stuff, group stuff when people want to hear me talk about promotional best practices. So it's just a variety of different methods. People seek me out. I mean, one cool thing about the National Fire Academy is obviously with social media, we're connected with a lot of people, many who we had never met. But here I am at the National Fire Academy and the guy who's got the room next door to me, I mean, I was telling him earlier, I go, hey, I got to teach class. I got a podcast. So I go, if I'm, scream- if I'm screaming too loud, you know, knock on, the, knock on my door and he saw my name tag. He goes, hey, we're connected on social media. I'm so-and-so for whatever. And it's like, hey, thank you for your stuff. And I'm like, thank you for the thing. So it's social media has also made it very easy to, get our thoughts out and to be able to maybe do what we each think is respectively, hopefully professional to help with it, share thoughts or offer up suggestions, ideas. So to me, it's just the best of all worlds now is that I don't have to deal with the headaches, but I can do things I enjoy doing, which is helping others. In addition to going to like rock concerts and ball games and seeing friends and doing stuff like this teaching, but it's all good. So how do you get involved? How do you, how do you get started? Uh, how did Code 3 fire training get started? I mean, I can tell you my origin story, but it's not nearly as interesting. I want to hear yours. Well, like I mentioned, as soon as I became a firefighter, I'd always enjoyed teaching. And the volunteer time I was spent teaching at the college ended up into paid positions, which was obviously nice for the sake of my time. And since I always had that desire to eventually start, you know, writing articles and speaking on officer development leadership stuff, Firehouse Magazine gave me that opportunity at the entry level to do a career column. Well, that all morphed in, and this is before social media, but it morphed into me being able to write articles. Well, there came a time where I started in the late 2000s, started, you know, getting the opportunity to speak at conferences like FDIC, Firehouse, Fire Rescue International, and people started requesting me based on the articles they read or maybe the blogs they saw me write. And it got to the point where just looking in the future, it's like, you know what, I want to do more of this because I enjoy being able to do this type of stuff. And that's when I was like, you know what, I'm, I might as well start my own business because at some point I don't want to do it just for free. If I'm doing that much of it, it's got to be a balance, obviously, for the time away from my wife. And it was just one of those, I was, I was at a firehouse one night and it's like, okay, I got to do something. I got to, you know, I got to create a website. I've got some classes I want to start teaching and offering to others. I want to do some coaching. Um, and I just, don't ask me how I'm trying to think of a name as I'm scouring the internet. What's a good freaking name. that has got a good catchphrase. And I just came across, I guess, code three fire training. And it's like, okay, I better pick a right name because it ain't going to change. And <laughs> I mean, it can change, but it's like, you get your feet wet. So it's just one of those things that stuck back in 2009 and, you know, just still to this day, very fortunate to use that outlet for teaching, coaching others writing articles, writing blogs, doing a lot of videos for my YouTube channel, just sharing whatever passion that I have through different mechanisms um, just to help benefit people. So maybe, I mean, I, I didn't want to call it Steve Przbrowski LLC because I'm just not that type of person that likes to have my name as my um, as my website or my business name. You can go to steepersbrowski.com, but the only reason I did, and it forwards to code3firetraining.com, I just did that because not that there's any other steepersbrowskis, but, you know, at least, okay, I'll have the URL and they can, I can just forward it to my other one, but I don't know. Good, bad, and different, that's how it came about, and fortunately, it's still, people still seem to care about listening to me or hearing me or having me help them. How, how was the book writing process? You've done it a couple of times. You've done it four times, working on five. Number five is going to be soon. 
with fire engineering. Well, it's funny. That story is I started writing the career development articles with Firehouse back in, I think it was 2002. Fire engineering was the first to print to publish me in a print magazine um, back in 2004. Um, and then I had got about 30 articles with fire engineering and then firehouse started publishing me print in addition to all the online stuff. So I had a lot of stuff that exact back 20 years ago, I had so many ideas. My brain was just going with creativity that I, you know, just started typing away and getting my thoughts. But by having the, the column, the career column in firehouse.com, I was able to put all my, my thoughts together. And I started just a whole series of just becoming a firefighter. And then when I sort of exhausted that getting promoted, well, fast forward, I'd always wanted to write a book or two, not for the sake of a vanity project, but just to be able to collect those thoughts and share with anyone who gives a crap. Well, I was at a, I think I was at Firehouse World. This was like about 2011. I had looked like at fire engineering, you can submit your manuscript. When I looked at all the requirements, it scared the crap out of me, as it should. Yeah. They want to weed out the people that are just not serious. When I looked at all this stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time because they're not yeah, I've written articles for them, but I'm not, I'm not anybody. I'm not whoever. John Salk with the FDNY, Rick Lasky, you know, the big names. And, you know, I had my thoughts. I actually, when I collected all the articles that I had already posted on Firehouse, there was no copyright violation because Firehouse, the online stuff, gave me free reign to use that stuff. I think it was after 90 days. So I had literally a couple hundred pages collected of all those thoughts together that I updated, modernized, and then really... I was still vacillating between, okay, I can put this stuff, and I'm pointing just to the computer, I can put my thoughts on paper on a Word document, but I can't turn it into a nice, you know, pretty book. You know, I mean, I look at a book that's got a nice cover and, you know, everything laid out. I mean, obviously, there's copy editors, there's places that can do that for you. That's why I was hoping to get a publisher. But anyway, I was at Firehouse World in San Diego, I think it was about 2011, Rich Gasway, you know, many know him for all the situational awareness stuff that Rich does. Him and I were chatting and Rich is like, how's your books going? I go, eh, I, I, I don't know if I should self-publish them, who's going to buy them, there's no publishers. He goes, would you just hit the print key? He goes, here's, there was, you know, self-publishers before Amazon was doing, but there's other self-publishers. And he goes, he goes, just here, here's the company that I used. You know, there's other companies out there. He goes, just check them out. They'll charge you some money, obviously, up front to do copy editing or help design the cover or whatever else. He goes, just check them out. Well, I checked them out, and I was like, you know what? Okay, and I next thing you know, I had three manuscripts already done because they were already in the hopper, cleaned them up a little bit, and I was able to publish all three within a month of each other in October 2013 because I'd already had them. You know, I paid money up front to have them do it. Not a lot, but it was a chunk. And I never expected to make a return on investment, but I, in a couple of years, I made my money back and was very happy with those three books. And then right before the pandemic, I bet two years before, so probably 2000, I think 18, the book editor with Fire Engineering reached out to me. It was a, just a chance reached out because he saw one of my articles. And he goes, hey, Steve, he goes, I can't remember the conversation, but it's like, hey, you know, you wrote the article for fire engineering for us years ago. I'm with the book side of things. Can we use some of your snippets or sound bites for something else they're promoting? I don't know who else they're promoting. I go, your shit, yeah, go for it. You guys published it. And then we just started having a chance conversation because he he had no clue who I was, short of I wrote some articles for fire engineering and I spoke at FDIC. Well, we started talking, and next thing I know, I go, well, yeah, I've also got another manuscript, which is my latest 
um, 101 Tips to Ace Your Promotional Exam. I go, hey, I actually got another manuscript and I'm thinking about self-publishing and I don't know how I threw it out there. I threw it out there and I don't think he was maybe serious, but he goes, oh, you got another manuscript, right. And he goes, well, you know, if you throw us maybe your executive summary or whatever your high levels are, maybe we can work you through. I go, no, it's done. I mean, it, it wasn't done, but it's it's done at least draft model. And he goes, yeah, just send it to me, whatever. Well, I mean, it was like a couple hours later, next thing you know, he's like, I like this. He goes, I'm sending you a contract tomorrow. I'd love to publish this. And here's some suggestions on how to build upon it and how I add it to it. I'm like, holy crap, thank you. And at first, well, right when I sent him the book, I mean, the manuscript, I also sent him my resume. Because again, he didn't really know me from Adam. And when I shared that, I'm not just a guy that's, you know, article 20, 20 articles with fire engineering and spoke at FDIC. I've been teaching at the college for 20 plus years at the time, or more than that. I've been speaking nationally at major stages, local fire departments. I've written articles for all the major publications. So I wasn't like a flash in the pan. So I was somebody that at least came to the plate with some credibility because obviously their goal is to sell books. I get it. So it was one of those perfect moments where I'm getting a contract for the book. And it was, and again, leadership and officer development was my passion. But the reason I picked the 101 promotional tips, which is a leadership book, was because I'd already done the two entry-level books, the one promotional book, and I figured, you know what, let's just do another promotional one to build upon the first one. Well, when I did that, deep in the back of my head, go, you know what, I better get my leadership, first leadership book done, because if this first book goes good, I'm going to ping them with the next one, and they will they can either publish or tell me go somewhere else, which I don't mind, because I've self-published before, I know the drill. Well, I guess the first book did okay, enough that, hey, Give me that other manuscript that you got. Hey, we like this. Here's a contract. So that's the next one getting published here. So again, if I had waited to be just having a leadership book published, it might have been forever. But it's like, okay, get my foot in the door with this passionate topic about getting hired, getting promoted that I have credibility with, I'd like to think. And then just sort of one thing leads to another opportunities, you know, knock on this door, you go through this one. So just a lot of stars lined up and, you know, a lot of luck, a lot of timing, a lot of hard work, and just who knows what. Your your program that you teach around the country is Courage Under Fire, correct? Yeah, Courage Under Fire Leadership, yep. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. We'll get to the book. Where yep. where did this come from? How 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 did it how did it come to be? Once I became a captain and I had some credibility with writing articles on entry-level promotional preparation, and once I had a couple of years as an officer under my belt, that's when I started branch, feeling comfortable enough to branch out with leadership officer development stuff. And I guess hopefully, thankfully to my track record of the other stuff, you know, I, somebody gives you a chance to write an article or, you know, you'll speak at a conference on leadership and it's like FDIC first. I got accepted first back in 2009 for a training-related topic because they said, hey, training-related, this is what yeah. FDIC is. So I started doing 101 tips to, excuse me, 101 different drills for the company officer, training drills. Did that for a few years. And then it's like, you know what, I want to try leadership. Well, I guess because of a track record. So as I started doing more and more leadership training, mostly for company officers, then it started branching out and I became a battalion chief to battalion chiefs and below. I <laughs> good, bad, or different of how this sound, I want, I wanted to have something that would stick to me. And I struggled with looking at just like code three fire training, you get one chance sometime to 
I mean, you can create many URLs, many websites, but I don't want to change different business models and all that legalese that goes with it. I'd like to stick with the same name, just like my wife reminds me, starter wives are the cheaper wives. It's like yesterday. And it's one of those things that the more and more, more and more leadership stuff I was exposed to, I wanted a catchphrase. And it wasn't until I was watching, you know, the Worcester, Massachusetts tragedy from December, 1999, where the six firefighters lost their lives. I was watching Chief Michael McNamee, the first in district chief who became IC and then Interior Command and basically was one responsible when the six firefighters died, but he was also responsible for not allowing others to die because he had to basically cut it off. One of the toughest decisions probably anyone, God forbid, ever has to make of bad enough you six people die, but now he's got a, I mean, he, he kept another probably 12 to 15 from dying potentially. So tough calls. But to me, that took courage, which I always knew courage is a factor of leadership. Well, after listening to him, I don't know how I had the epiphany, but I go, that takes courage under fire to be a leader. And it's not just knowing when to say when, meaning don't go in, but sometimes it's a matter of the opposite of go in. That's what we're here for. Sometimes people, I think, get mistaken by the name or maybe because they're misinformed and I always like to tell people, no, courage under fire leadership is about getting your butt in that darn burning building or IDLH environment when you need to. But sometimes it's also saying no because the building is fully involved and the resources we have just are not going to make a difference. So it's it works both ways, but it's definitely about being an aggressive firefighter, being an aggressive brother or sister, meaning raising your hand when stupid things are occurring and maybe you as the lowest ranking person, a firefighter is a leader, not by rank, but has the potential. You know, we've all seen situations around the country where firefighters made poor choices on duty or off duty, but especially on duty and have been arrested or fired or suspended or demoted. And some of those might even prevent it with somebody actually raising their hand at the kitchen table and saying, dude, do that. Don't stop. Don't do that. That to me is brotherhood or sisterhood, but we also know what happens when you raise your hand. You know, it's almost like the whack-a-mole theory because you're that one that's calling calling a brother out or a sister out and you're snitching on them. No, I'm not snitching on you. I'm actually trying to help you save you from yourself. So that's sort of how Courage Under Fire came about. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's like different authors have different titles that seem to be synonymous with them. And I know there's a lot of other authors, I mean, leadership there's a ton of people doing leadership and a lot of great stuff, a lot of great books. So that's why it's like, I better have something that I'm going to be happy with name wise that I can stick with, but also build upon. And I think that's sort of long story of how that came about. What type of, what's the most memorable example or examples of feedback that you've gotten from people either directly? Cause you've done this in how many States now? 38, I was of two weeks ago in New York, and I just got booked for West Virginia in May, and I just got booked for Louisiana tomorrow, so I'll be up to 40 states come May. So really excited about that. Um, as for stories, I'm sorry, refresh memory on the stories part you said. What type of the most memorable feedback that you got from people? Again, you, you said it a minute ago, leadership. I, I realized Courage Under Fire Leadership yeah. is, a, is the title, but really it's more – of a mentorship, you're out there trying to tell people, don't make these mistakes. What type well, of feedback also, do you get? 
Well, it's also an umbrella, meaning I'm, I'm not just trying to keep people out of trouble from making career-altering or life-altering decisions. It's also doing the right thing for the community, doing the right thing for the organization, doing the right thing for the department and so forth. But probably the best feedback I've gotten, um, it, I don't do this for the accolades. I don't think most, I would like to think most of us don't do it for the pat on the back or the encouragement, but it is nice and inspiring when someone can just reach out that you've never met before Example, in Dallas, Texas, at uh, at the, the Teaks conference, they're teaching. And, I mean, there's fire chiefs all the way down. And one of the local fire chiefs comes up to me at break time, and he's like, Steve, nice to finally meet you in person. I'm like, I'm like nice to meet you, chief. You know, who are you? He's like, I'm, I'm the local fire chief here and everything else. And he goes, I want to thank you for your website. And I'm like, what are you talking? He goes, you run Code3FireTraining.com, right? I go, yeah. He goes, you got the free stuff link on there because I have a free stuff. It's free stuff. Yeah, you can buy books, but free stuff. And he goes, dude, he goes, I saw, I stumbled upon your website like 13 years ago. He goes, your stuff helped get me promoted to driver, helped get me promoted to captain, helped get me promoted to battalion chief, deputy chief, all the way up because on my website, Obviously, you can buy my books, but I've also got links to like articles that I've written that are on there, um, links to a lot of documents I've put together that I think are beneficial, some past presentations um, that I feel are beneficial to others. And he's like all the and I, I that's the part of stuff that it just sort of makes my day when I hear people that I've never met before from all parts of the country going, you don't know me. I've never thanked you before, but I I'm getting a chance to meet you in person or they just send a random email or a random text. And saying, I stumbled across your stuff on the internet. There's not a lot of stuff out there like you that are so giving to give back. You should be charging. Well, yeah, maybe I should be charging, but then I always worry about who's going to buy it and everything else. But it's like, you know what? I'm very comfortable and I'm fortunate to do. But on the flip side, if I can help others this way, go for it. So that to me is probably some of the coolest feedback to just have people randomly believe in, I guess, what I'm saying to the point that they'll take some things. I'm they're not I'm not expecting them to be word for me because they're they're them, I'm me. Some of the nuggets, the tips, the suggestions that I'm offering or my theme or my I guess um um uh shit what word I'm looking for just uh, I guess the tenants or the the message I'm thank you the message I'm trying to send seems to align with their message. So that's that's sort of cool because it's like because there's days I wonder why am I wasting my friggin' time updating the website, putting stuff on there. I mean, obviously speaking, writing, and it's like, okay, that's why I enjoy what I'm fortunate to do is when people just when actually someone. I mean, I know there's people benefiting it. And I don't necessarily need a pat on the back, but it's just nice to know that your stuff is not just round filed, so to speak. Well, I think you're being a little bit modest there, which is nice to see. It, it's you do it because you want to make a difference. Right. Yeah. I mean, it all goes back to that. It's not necessarily about a pat on the back. It's it's about knowing, and that's why I asked the question, no matter which I asked it, it's what type of feedback are you getting? Because if you're getting nothing from, from feedback, that makes it very difficult at the same time to continue doing what you're doing. I got a text message this week from a, a recruit that sought me out from my fire academy and he said hey i just want to let you know i just got a, a conditional offer from a fire department local fire department nice and i said let me know when you're getting sworn in you know i had i did nothing but provide encouragement a little bit of wisdom uh -huh. that i gained over the years and uh it matters it matters to people it's important well and it's funny you say that because i mean that's something else that comes to my mind with all the the 30 plus years I've been teaching at the community college level, 
I mean, I'm when you're seeing students that used to be your students years ago that are becoming not just captains, but battalion chiefs, deputy chiefs, it's like, okay, I'm getting old here when I got former students that are becoming, you know, higher ranking than I was. But again, I'm not, it's not, it's not insulting or intimidating. It's just, it's actually pretty cool. And like you, I get people that reach out just like, Hey, I haven't talked to you. While. I just want to give you an update. I, I got promoted a captain. We haven't talked in years or I got hired as a firefighter. I'm just like you, Hey, let me know. And I'm a resource. Keep me in mind. Keep me posted. Excuse me. And I didn't take the interview for them. They had to take the interview, but the point is that I had some influence on them, whatever I did, Again, that's it's nice to be able to shape, like you said earlier, the future of the fire service, inspire them, and so forth. Yeah, I just did a presentation last week at Fire Rescue East in Daytona, uh, and I did it based upon the 21st century uh, fire and EMS document from CPSE and ICMA, which I know you, you've read. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about sustainability moving forward into the future. Where, where do we see ourselves in 20 years? Yeah. And it it takes a lot early on. You've been in a room a lot. It takes a lot. But once you find your groove, the message is comes through and people start buying into what you're saying because you're you're trying to help trying to help them. Right. You're not trying. People don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. You're yeah. you're you're basically trying to help them to do their job. Um. I got a phone call last night from a, a guy from my old department I haven't spoken to in a while. And he he frequently, when I speak to him, reminds me, thank you for giving me the opportunity to go to the National mm -hmm. Fire Academy. And I said, oh, that's cool. I said, listen, I gave that opportunity to a lot of people. Thank you for taking me up on it and doing something with it. So, you know, the, you you unilaterally make yourself available, but not everyone avails themselves of you. And that's what mentorship is all about. In, in that ICMA CPSE document, it actually, I did the presentation last year and then I started the, this podcast in March with Rob and Michael. And so when I was doing it again this year, I'm looking and it speaks about mentoring and reverse mentorship. Okay. And re re reverse mentorship is, is, very interesting concept. What what can new people teach us about whatever it is that we need to know? Uh, mm -hmm. Being open to that, um, it's a very very interesting concept. That, that that's cool. That, that, but that's so true. Is because for as much as we can share with others, they can share with us as well too. And that's what the other co-instructor that's here with me with the 21 students that we have in class, you know, there's fire chiefs down at company officers in this class. And, you know, like we're both very upfront that, Hey, you know, we're hoping to pass on our knowledge. We're definitely not the smartest people in the room, but we're going to learn from all of you as well too, as we have, once they start doing their discussions and everything else. And, you know, that, that's the cool part about it is, you know, being open to be learning from others and not thinking you're the smartest person in the room because then you got problems. Agreed. What's uh, when is the book due for release? Let's see, you know, I wish I had that answer. A few months ago, um, I was told hopefully by FDIC this year, but then the last conversation I had, unfortunately, as we all know, Bobby Halton passed away right in the end, um, end of December, and a lot, I, without knowing all the int um, intricate details of how that affected stuff going on at fire insuring books and videos and everything else. Obviously it was a tremendous loss and a lot of 
ripple effect um, with that void. So apparently there's um, as of right now, I don't know. So I'm waiting to hear back from them of just where we're at time wise. So, you know what, it's, you know what, I've, I've waited a while. I can wait a little bit more, but it's just uh, hopefully this year sometime. So I w wish I had a better answer to offer, but I know, I know they're trying hard. They just got a number of different books. They're trying to prioritize for a variety of different reasons. You know, you mentioned Bobby. I met Bobby at the National Fire Academy 2002. Oh, all world. <clears throat> and uh, I'm sitting in uh, fire service course design. Okay. I may have told the story before. I'm sitting, next, I'm sitting next to this guy, and I'm like, who's this guy? Albuquerque. Who's this guy? <laughs> and uh, fell in love with the guy. You know, huge heart. Uh, made a tremendous difference in my life and in my career over 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, it, what by bringing his name up, you, you caused me to think of something that I heard recently about getting to middle age, which we're all kind of creeping in around that same area, I would imagine. And, yeah. And it, it, the, the concept is uh, resume versus eulogy. You know, earlier in our career, we worked to build a resume and then to get <laughs> to a point where you're still working on your eulogy. And when you think of somebody like Bobby, um, the eulogy is, is, you know, he had such an impact on people. Oh, yeah. And some of the things that you were talking about early with us in, in this recording was about building a resume, building a resume, building writing and sp speaking sure. and promotions and, and certifications. It's all about creating. And then you reach that point where you can just either continue to, to do that or do nothing. But you're you're giving back, and I think that speaks volumes of your character, uh, and you're continuing to do so. What are some of the things that you that you're looking forward to doing in the future? I know, I know that the the two things are to watch your baseball game in every um, ballpark. Have Have you met that goal? Oh, I've met that goal, and uh, now my wife and I are. So, well, she doesn't want to necessarily do it, but I'm starting to hit some minor league parks as well, too, during my travels of speaking and uh, other things. So it's all good. That and speaking all 50 states. But what what type of, of things do you really want to accomplish that you have yet to accomplish? You know, it's, it, I never want to be retired in place and I never want to be out of touch. And I think that's the one thing that I've heard from a lot of retirees that um, – it's very easy, especially around five years once you retire, to some to really lose touch unless you're really involved. I mean, there's exceptions. Look at you know the late Alan V. Brunacini. I mean, here's a guy at 80 years old and he passed away. I think 12, 13 years retired at the time, but even at 80 years old, I from the times I saw him and knowing him as a friend, the man still was I think relevant, regardless of some people's opinions but he was also still in touch with what's going on because he cared. He showed that he cared and he made an effort to talk to people and stay engaged. So no matter what I'm doing, as long as I can stay relevant, I guess, um, cause I don't ever want to be that guy. That's not forgot where he came. I mean, I definitely don't want to forget where he came from, but is so out of touch that he forgets what's going on in today's world. So I think that's 
and that's why again why I enjoy speaking, talking to firefighters, hanging out with firefighters, writing articles, reading fire engineering, reading firehouse, going to conferences to try to at least stay in the game there. And you know, I'm just you know, as I move forward in life, you know, my wife's got probably a few years before she retires, but you know, we don't have either we don't have any kids, and that's fine. And you know, just continuing to travel and catch ball games and right now make up a lot of lost rock concerts that I wasn't able to see during COVID and everything else and lots of concerts on the horizons. I've always loved my hard rock and heavy metal music and it was a period of time about up to about the year before COVID hit where for whatever reason because my mostly because my wife didn't like going to concerts because just even with the earplugs on and headphones it just it just I guess it just drove her friggin' crazy. I mean, she likes music and she's got some concerts where she actually enjoyed it, like the Rolling Stones she enjoyed. And um, I took her to Elton John. She liked that. But taking her to like front row to Scorpions concert where the, you know, the bass drum is kicking and she's just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going back to the hotel room. I'll see you. Okay, bye, babe. But she's the point where it's like, hey, you like all this music? Just go. And, and there was... About a year before COVID, I remember it was like, hey, Metallica, I didn't catch Metallica on the current tour for whatever stupid reason. And it's like, well, they're playing wherever they were playing. And she goes, then why don't you go? What do you mean? Why don't you go? What's an airline ticket cost? What's, I mean, you can't take your money with you. Go enjoy the damn concert. Don't be saying, I wish I would have gone see them. And it's like, oh, okay. And that was sort of what kicked me. Like, And again, once COVID, I don't want to say ended because depending on how you look at it, there's still some lingering effects, but this year is seeming very back to normal. Um, more and more concerts out there, and I just enjoy going to live music and just having fun. So uh, so all that sense, just as long as I'm healthy, able to do things, mentor people, help people, teach as much as I can, have more fun without the stress and headaches of being a chief, and just uh, you know spend time with my wife traveling. But again, she has no problem with me doing all this stuff because she's like, go have fun. Just check in once a day. Be safe. Don't do anything stupid. Okay. Molly Crew, Def Leppard playing Miami pretty soon. I know that. They're doing Miami. They're doing Atlantic City, I think, uh, in a couple weeks. <laughs> I'm going to catch them in the summertime. I saw them last summer in Cleveland and in Nashville. And I think I'm going to catch them in Fargo, North Dakota this next August. And you may go, why the hell Fargo, North Dakota? Well, I've never been to that venue. So part of my thing now is trying to go to different venues I haven't been to. And because I'm teaching back East partly that week, it's like, well, heck, I can catch halfway home, go there, and then come back home. So, yeah, got to love it. You know, bring back my growing up in the 80s, graduating high school in 84. I mean, that was that prime for all the 80s, the Motley Crue, the Def Leppards, the, you know, the Metallicas. And it's like, I mean, it was a very special era. And it's all good. You're speaking to my heart. Well, and that's the funny thing is maybe it's something that a lot of people didn't talk about. But the more as I get older, I loved it because I've always liked this music. I've never hit it. And it's funny because some people don't like to talk about it for whatever reason, or they get older and they don't, they just grow into different things or out of it. And when I was at the fire department, it was just always so funny to watch people come to my office and I'd have like Slayer coming out of the uh, Slayer Metallica anthrax maybe then acdc and then the next minute might be garth brooks the next minute might be huey lewis the news the rolling stones then back to whatever death metal and i used to love the look on people's faces when they'd walk in my office going our private coordinator you listen to that kill your mother music uh it's not kill your mother music i love my late mother god rest her soul but all the guys used to say when i was a bc they used to love checking out my v the doing the check daily check on the BC vehicle because I'd already usually after I put my gear on, I'd probably have something already cranked out of there. 
just like, hey, it's my happy place. So we all got to, and again, in today's world with health and wellness being such a big deal, that's one of the things I talk about is finding your balance. Like for all these years, like I mentioned, I didn't go to a lot of concerts. I really just didn't do a lot of things for whatever reasons versus now it's like I'm making up for lost time because I realize how precious time is and balance is key. So we don't go crazy, I guess, or even worse, have bad things happen. So Steve, I'm going to ask you a question. What is your most cherished or memorable or significant professional accomplishment that you could think of? If you had to pick one. Getting hired. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, again, at the nineties, there was thousands of candidates for such few jobs that was, I mean, and after testing 60, sometimes that was still, you know, finding a department that was going to take a chance on me for a full-time position, not just take a chance on me, but give me the opportunity to be a firefighter for five or six years, promote to captain, promote to battalion chief, promote to deputy chief, and give me a great life and career for my family. You know, that, I mean, I look at it that way. I mean, yeah, you talked about resumes earlier. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate that I've, you know, I've done a lot of things I'm happy about doing, you know, whether it's training, education, speaking, writing, you know, those are all good things, but it's not like I'm changing the world in any capacity in that sense, meaning um, curing cancer or something. So that's, that's why it's hard to pinpoint something because, I mean, again, I'm, I wouldn't change the clock or turn anything back. But I think, honestly, just being having the opportunity to become a firefighter, which has led, which has really has led to all the opportunities that I've been able to do things at versus work, you know, building feminine hygiene displays at Long's Drug Stores to this day. So I bet it was a fantastic feminine hygiene display. You know what? Hey, it's you do what you got to do there. But <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, it's I don't know. I, I just because uh, I just can't pinpoint one thing because, again, it's it's just been very blessed to be in this position. And I think it all started when I was able to be a firefighter. I think it, it does speak volumes. I, we've talked, Rob had, what was your stellar GPA you had, Rob? 1.6. 1.6 GPA. I think it took me, I, I'm going to do the actual math. It took me 15 years to get my degree. You know, none of us really were academics coming out of high school, but once you find your calling, so I can appreciate the fact of an answer to that, which was without the fire service, it's not that you would not have been successful, but it allowed you to channel that energy, that focus and that passion for something and achieve great things. And the fire service is really there for, for people. I think that you know, to really kind of put a bow on it on this conversation is is the fire service is not just about fighting fires or providing services really it's about service and making a difference in the life of people for me once i once i recognized that the fire service was a people business yeah. is when it changed i used to think it was about going to fires and, <laughs> and then i figured out it was that we're in the people business and that's really when everything changed well it's funny you mentioned the gpa because Going through Salient or high school, I barely passed, got out of high school like a 2.05. My grades were not even good enough to get into Cal State Hayward, but I guess they were desperate for students. <laughs> it was a college 15 minutes away. Otherwise, I would go right to Chabot and work my fire stuff. But for whatever reason, I guess I was on academic probation most of the time there. Like I said, six and a half year degree program for four years. And even then, about a 2.08 to get out of my four-year degree, but at least it says degree. Well, this is what, you know, as I tell people, 
yeah, I squeaked by there. But as soon as I graduated Cal State Hayward, I went right down, not downgrading myself, but I went from the 40 degree and I went to enroll at the college, the community college to work on my EMT, my firefighter one and all that stuff. And I got probably like about 3.9 grade point average for my two-year degree because yeah. I was actually enjoying it. I was passionate about it. I think the only class I got B's in were like chemistry. And I was never good at chemistry. Chemistry and like hazmat, which is obviously chemistry related. And then to take to the next level, when I went for my master's degree about 20 years ago, I graduated that with, it was either, either 4.0 or right below. I mean, I got A's and all, but again, it, comes back to it was probably a better place in my time where I was taking things more seriously. I enjoyed the subjects more and I was able to apply the subjects more that diverse is just quantitative analysis and business or, you know, statistics, which I just did not enjoy that stuff because it didn't make sense as an 18, 19, 20 year old student. So you hit the nail on the head as you find that passion and yeah, the fire service is that it's a people job. It's not a us job. It's a people job that we're here for them. And we got to do what we can to try to make their day better. As somebody who's written a lot of books and read, written a lot of articles, what uh, what kind of books are you reading nowadays? Good Lord. I've got, it's funny because with all the traveling I do, I always try to carry books and everything else. And uh, I, I, starting out, I got a, my backpack has got like guitar magazines because I've taken up <laughs> guitar lately. I've got heavy metal rock magazines. I've got, uh, some music, other music-related magazines. Book-wise, I've got, you know, my buddy Jesse Penalty's new book uh, that I wrote a few pages for, Rescue Me. Um, I've got other other fire books at home that I haven't. I've got sitting at my desk, and I've got Rob Halford, the singer of Judas Priest, his latest book, uh, Biblical, that I was starting to get into. But I just got ADHD. That I had a six-hour plane ride out here on the East Coast, and it's like, I'm like, oh, shit, I can knock this stuff out. And I got barely into it because I'd be 20 minutes into it, get bored. All right, on the phone, okay, pick up a magazine, take a nap. Uh, yeah, they, I never was diagnosed with ADHD, but I would be probably if I was today, so it's a squirrel. So that's okay. So, yeah, the, a combination of fire-related books, rock music books, some obviously some leadership books when I get my hands on them, but just whatever sounds interesting at the time. Fantastic. Rob, do you have any questions or uh, anything for Steve? No questions. Uh, just uh, gratitude, Steve. Man, it was a pleasure meeting you. I've, I've seen your name throughout the uh, journals and everything else. And then when Michael told me Edge is a guest, I'm like, I I'm going to be there. Uh, and uh, I was not disappointed. So, uh, again, sir, it was a pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much uh, for supporting the podcast and uh, being a guest. The feeling is mutual, brother. Nice to meet you as well, too. I appreciate the opportunity for you and Michael for allowing me to be here today. Because, I, I mean, again, this is fun stuff, and I can talk for hours on hours. And there comes that point where I don't want to bore the crap out of people. But, but again, I, I enjoy listening to podcasts, too, because anything anything we can all do to help share whatever our message is, my message may not be for everybody, but there's always someone out there. Just like even someone like uh, Alan Bernicini never jived with everybody, so to speak. But again, all of us should be just picking up a little bit from somebody else. So I had a great time, and I appreciate the opportunity, both of you. So thank you very much for, uh, I think, a good chat and a good hang. I had a lot of fun tonight. Well, we want to thank you for, for being here. We're going to put your contact information in the show notes. I want you to hang on. Don't log off to show Steve will wrap up the show up after we log off. 
But for people out there, Steve Przborowski, Code 3 Fire Training, Courage Under Fire Leadership, uh, Fire Engineering Books. He's everywhere. Um, he's making himself available to you, which truly yes. is mentor mentorship is. And I highly recommend you check him out if you haven't seen him or heard from him. Uh, we thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Mentors on Fire podcast. Thanks Night, everybody. Night, everybody. Have a good one.